0: Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and aesthetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor with over 16 years experience in facial aesthetics.
1: And I'm David Siegel, an entrepreneur and business mentor with over 20 years of experience in our industry. Our podcasts are aimed at industry professionals and any information or advice given is general in nature. You should consult with a healthcare provider before undergoing any treatment.
0: You can also subscribe to us on Patreon for on-demand content for injectable and business education. It's chapter 18 of the Injector Diaries and the first one of 2024.
1: Yeah, Injector Diaries Wednesday. And we're joined by the lovely Kelly Beasy from Queensland here in Australia. You're actually a nurse practitioner. And we've met before. I came up and did uh, a little presentation at a conference you put on up in Brisbane um, with Sue N, who's one of your colleagues, who's not too far away. So we go back a little bit and you're obviously a, um, a passionate member of our Patreon community. So thank you for your support and for spreading the word and for coming on to having a chat with us today. We look yeah. forward to these episodes because they're, they're not difficult to plan because all we're doing is finding about you, your journey and sort of what makes you tick and I guess trying to extract any hints and tips and gold that you can, you can share with the listeners. So I love these episodes.
0: Love these episodes and let's be honest we organize this very late and like you said they're just fun they're about <laughs> Kelly and what she does and why she's doing it so mm-hmm. let's get into it so Kelly um, tell everyone who's listening about you and I guess particularly what is a nurse practitioner I know we have covered it occasionally in the past but it's, it's slightly specialized and so uh, tell the world what you do.
2: Yeah well um, morning guys and thanks for having me so um, yeah, a nurse practitioner is essentially an advanced practice nurse, someone who has been working in a certain field for um, several years and has um, relevant expertise in that particular field. They then go on to complete a master's degree, um, which um, allows us to do um, advanced clinical assessment, um, diagnosis. Um, we can um, order investigations, diagnostic testing, um, interpret those results. Um, and then further go on to treat possibly with some prescribing. So we have prescribing rights and we operate under sort of four pillars which involve sort of our clinical care, education to patients, clients and consumers as well as our colleagues and other nurses as well as research and leadership within the field. So there's quite a few domains that we need to uh, satisfy for APRA within the Mm. nurse practitioner.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what were you doing before you sort of ventured into the aesthetic world? Like what was the original, I guess, driving motivation towards getting into nursing and then pursuing the the nurse practitioner pathway? Because we're we're going to be talking about this in a few weeks with one of our other colleagues who's just finished her MP. And we believe the pathway to get there when you have an aesthetic background is, is quite difficult, almost impossible now. But tell us about your journey a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's definitely tricky now for aesthetic nurse practitioners. So my background, I've been a nurse for 20 years um, with a background in rural and remote and emergency nursing. So I kind of went to university straight off the bat to study nursing um, and then I went overseas. I sort of uh, accidentally fell into a job with a plastic surgeon in Harley Street in London (laughs) who um, we did penis enlargement among other things so it was extremely interesting and I learned a lot about the world of uh, plastic surgery and cosmetic medicine with them after that sort of came back to Australia and worked rural and remote and then I stumbled across the AACDS Australian Academy of Cosmetic Dermal Sciences course which I then did um, and that, that gave me a lot more background around skin Uh, skin treatments as well as cosmetic injectables and that touched again on um, cosmetic surgery nursing which was sort of a bit of my background. From there I did some more remote stuff and eventually moved to Brisbane, did some emergency nursing and finally thought it's time to get back into cosmetic because I was a bit burnt out with the hospital and the government sector. Mm. And I really enjoyed the satisfaction of making people feel better about themselves with cosmetic medicine and plastic surgery medicine. So I actually started dividing my time between emergency and working for a cosmetic surgeon here in Brisbane, doing a little bit of theatre while learning my injectables And it's just evolved from then. I've stepped further and further and further away from the public health government sector and more into cosmetic nursing. And my career has just, um, I guess, gone from strength to strength in this industry. Yeah, I've really enjoyed being able to um, grow my private business as well as the training side of things.
0: Um, What year did you pick up a syringe and who trained you? What, What was your first course like?
2: Yeah, so I did the AACDS course back in 2009 and there was a short component of injectables within that. So we did all the theory behind it. We did some practical sessions. But then it was a couple of years um, before I picked up a syringe again and started working. So it really wasn't until I came to Brisbane and, um, I think it was uh, 2011 or the start of 2012, where I started working with a plastic, a cosmetic surgeon, sorry, here in Brisbane and started injecting. And he taught me, but his focus was really plastic. So he probably wasn't the best educator. I was very lucky in that we had a lot of pharma reps came in and train us. And coincidentally, I actually had um, Mike Clegg come up and do some training with me. And that was Really pivotal in my early career. He was—he's an excellent educator. Had some really good um, non-clinical aspects to mm-hmm. our training in terms of the consult photo taking, aftercare, that sort of thing. Um, and from there, I'm someone who—I'm a bit of a geek. I love study. I love learning. Um, I'm always studying something, so I'm always doing self-directed learning. I find a lot of courses online, or I reach out to people. I've done. A lot of cadaver courses, I've done four of them now. I've gone to nearly all of the conferences most years um, and just sort of out training with other people that I admire within the industry. So I think it's, a, it's an ongoing, ever-evolving educational process, I suppose.
1: Mm. So what were those first sort of one to two years like for you? So you're working in, in a plastic surgeon's office. The in- industry is still fairly immature back then and, and training was sort of difficult to come by and probably infrequent, although you did have some, some great assistance from people like Mike Clagg, who used to work for Allegan. I knew Mike when he was actually a rep uh, yeah. for Allegan. So it's been, it's, yeah. been, it's been a long time. But how did you sort of navigate those first couple of years? Because that's something that comes up quite often in, in our Patreon group and the WhatsApp chats and, and some of my clients that I'm talking to as well who are new to the industry is sort of navigating that first two yeah, years, yeah. you know, finding out who are you as an injector, what do you want to be known for, carving out your niche, getting through the mental yeah. journey of having no patience and, and slowly building up and your consult. So just, I, I think if you could shine some light on your first two years and, and, and how you sort of got through it and if you have any knowledge or, yeah. or things that you've learned from that period that you could share, I think could be really beneficial for those that are particularly in the infancy, infancy of their career. Yeah.
2: I think, we need to be clear that it's a very different industry now than what it was more than 10 years ago it's it's changed a lot and um i was very lucky to be working with a cosmetic surgeon who was nearly always in the building and while his focus was more surgery he he did inject himself so there was always that support person From that clinic, I always worked in a clinic with a doctor or at least other nurses that had more experience than me. So I always had that person to go to to seek advice. And I, you know, even in my emergency career still to this day, I will go and ask questions of people with more knowledge than me just to reassure myself, just go, what would you do in this situation? So I think finding a mentor, ideally setting yourself up in a clinic with other people that have more experience than you that are happy to support you and help you. I appreciate that's really hard these days. I also had the benefit of having years of clinical nursing behind me, which I actually think is very important because we've got to remember that this is a medical treatment and our patients come with a medical history. Things can go wrong. We need to have a good understanding of health states and medications that might contribute to what we're doing or complicate what we're doing so my best advice would be seek out as much training and education as you can there is a wealth of stuff out there online there is all the major pharma companies have online portals with um online education i know allegan is um the ami i think it still is Teoxane have one chroma have a huge have one Everyone has one. Galderma has one. There's a lot of information on them. Like I said, I'm a geek. I've finished all of them that I possibly have access to. Um, seek out courses, cadaver courses in particular. I'm very, very passionate about anatomy. Um, take it with a grain of salt where you get your information if you're following people on social media. So mm. be very mindful what their background is because anyone can say anything on social media. It doesn't make it right. Um, but yeah, n- number one thing would be try and get into a clinic with people around you find yourself a mentor and then just seek out as much education as you can and be mindful you have to pay for it these days
1: and join our patreon how about that
2: join the (laughs) patreon that's been absolutely fantastic yeah
1: i mean yeah all jokes aside i mean and this is exactly one of the, the driving reasons why we wanted to create this was because we had all these people from around the world who had years and years of experience like people like yourself and then people who were just getting started and i guess it, is, can, it can be a very lonely journey for people and not knowing where to go and perhaps you know the people around you aren't keen to share their knowledge because sometimes people can be a bit protective of their trade secrets and IP. Mm.
3: Um,
1: and that's something that I think you know, I'm really proud of and I know Jake's really proud of as well as being able to bring a global community together of people that are all like-minded and, and want to help each other. And, and frankly, that, yeah.
0: it's quite lonely even for experienced injectors. Yeah. Most of us work alone or at least in a room all day, just yeah. seeing patients and you don't yeah. get too much interaction with your colleagues. Yeah. That's why we enjoy the conferences so much because it's suddenly like, yeah. oh, wow, it's social and you have to get to yeah. exchange ideas. But I think that ongoing basis, and yes, we have a whole ton of WhatsApp groups, but even just dipping in and, in and out mm-hmm. of some of the Patreon content, I think people appreciate that ongoing sort of, uh, I don't know, that camaraderie. Yeah, I think so
2: definitely it's a way to network with people all around australia and the world and and it's trusted content and some of the information that we get from the patreon group is just fantastic there's some really really experienced and clever people in there like it's it's fantastic yeah. one of the reasons why um this networking thing is i created a networking event which is where you came in david yeah. um, last year was to create a network of community amongst the nurses here so we have this sense of other people to support us and I think that's a really important thing in this industry because like you said it's very isolating working for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Why do you think that many injectors are reticent to 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 share? I mean you know what what are they clinging on to and 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 why don't you recommend that
2: I think people um can see other injectors as their competition. And I, I think that that's probably uh, a bit of a false sense of um, way of being because people see an injector, a hairdresser, whoever for the person that they are, as well as the outcome that they get. So yeah. there's a sense of relationship that you build and I might not get along with someone, but I might get along with someone else. So, you know, patients that like me and want to keep coming to me and they'll send their their friends to me are coming for who I am my personality as well as the outcome that I can give them so I think that holding on to your knowledge and data information doesn't really make you a better injector because that that's not going to stop patients from coming to see you or to go elsewhere Mm. and i think you you will get more you will get further in your career by creating networks and being open with information than you will by keeping it all to yourself
1: 100 mm. percent, yeah it's it's the fear thing isn't it people worry that if they give yeah. away information that they're going to be at a disadvantage and as you said it's it's very much a personalized service i mean yes there is a medical component yes it's serious we need to take it uh, and give it the respect that it, that it deserves. But at the same time, I, I used to work with a doctor that used to say what he did. He, he called himself a glorified hairdresser. And, you know, some people might take yeah. offense to that. But I guess when you sort of break it down, what he's saying is that it doesn't really, like if you don't have the best relationship with like your orthopedic surgeon, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's probably not the end of the world because it, this is something you have to get done for, for like a medical need. Whereas when you're coming to see a cosmetic injector, you're there because you want to be there and, it's, and you're going to see these people ongoing and you're talking about deep, you know, personal issues and insecurities and things that you want to do better. And so it is almost like that hairdresser relationship. It's almost like the relationship that like mm-hmm. women have with their hairdressers, like still to this day mm-hmm. blows my mind. Like my partner, we, like, she'll travel to the other end of the city <laughs> to see a hairdresser yeah. when there's plenty of them around because of the relationship. And I guess that's what you're saying is that it's more than yeah. just about the physical outcome or the clinical outcome. It's about how does this person make, make you feel?
3: Yeah,
2: it's definitely that bedside manner, right? Yeah. You know, we all have been at the receiving end of someone with a poor bedside manner and we don't like them and we're not going to probably stay with them. We might move GPs because we don't like their bedside manner and I think it's the same kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah you're right, you know, the, the relationship between a woman and a hairdresser yeah. is sacred, you know. We know a lot about each other, our deep down deep, uh, dark secrets <laughs> and um, yeah. issues with our spouse. That hairdresser knows all about you, David.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, talking about the, the personal relationship side of things, let's maybe talk about the consultation process because I can't really add much when it comes to the clinical side of things. But when it comes to building rapport and, I guess, nurturing that relationship and making people feel comfortable and extracting that important information that you guys need as clinicians, it's something that is overlooked. So, what did you, what have you learned over the years in terms of how to consult patients and how to? deal with those first encounters and, and really start to cultivate those relationships? Because those are the intangibles that I think
2: that people really struggle with. Yeah, definitely. I think I have a head start in that I have a background in emergency nursing. So I have cultivated for many years the ability to extract information from somebody in a very short time frame. i.e. in triage, we have a couple of minutes to find out the core of what's wrong with them, plus the ability in nursing to do a task while you talk to the patient and gather information. So when we have new doctors coming in, they are very task focused, and I find people or new people um, they can't speak and do something at the same time. Often, when you're new to an industry, so the ability to sort of um, gather the information while you're doing other things, drawing up your medication, filling in forms, taking photos is really important. But. Um, Just making people feel at ease, making them feel comfortable, um, being friendly, um, making them aware that um, this is a medical treatment and these are all the things that we do to make it safer, to um, explain things in a way that they can understand but that is still medically appropriate, I think is really important and that's sometimes a little bit tricky, but I think you get your spiel for your consult is developed over time by repetitively explaining that same information and being able to break it down into medically appropriate layman's terms. So practice, 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 you know, it gets better and better with time. What I found particularly hard initially was small talk Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not really someone who used to do small talk well but now I'm an expert at it you know I ask people about Christmas New Year's holidays kids work everything and I actually make a clinical note of something social in my clinical note so that when they come back I say how was that holiday how was the wedding how was this and it helps to build that rapport a little bit quicker they feel valued they feel like I remembered them and it, it builds that relationship
0: what do you like doing outside of work apart from injecting and running around like a headless chicken with uh you know your patients what 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 sort of motivates you outside of work? Do you have any hobbies?
2: Yeah, so um I actually like pottery. Oh, pottery, <laughs> um, nice. okay. Which is a bit weird. Yeah, I love pottery. Um not wheel but just um creating um yep. things um by hand, um coiling and things like that. So I do a lot of pottery which I really love. Um So that kind of feeds that artistic side of my brain, which Hmm. I've always been a little bit artistic. I used to do a lot of art back in the day. Um, I don't have any children, but I do have uh, an elderly dog who um, is getting a little bit slower, but, you know, spending time with him, taking him to the beach, walking and things like that. And then just the usual, you know, getting away with friends and family. But travel is probably a big passion of mine. I love traveling. I just went away for six weeks and come back to work and now I feel like I never had a holiday at all so <laughs>
3: That's exactly I've got how to work <laughs> a bit more
2: to so have another holiday
0: <laughs> yeah I got back a week, ago, well, a week ago today and within that week we've decided we're yeah. moving house we found a house and we're moving on Tuesday and we found the removalists and mm. half the house is packed up it's just nuts so I know <laughs> wow. how you feel um it's one way to get over your jet lag yeah exactly just <laughs> throw yourself into and we've done two podcasts as well yes yeah now um Tell yeah. us about Brisbane because, you know, the listeners who are listening, we always try and tap into the geography of where you are and just sort of set the scene to tell us about your patients and your clinic. So what's Brisbane like and um, what what's the market like in Brisbane?
2: Yeah, well, I love Brisbane. It's The weather is fantastic. Why wouldn't you want to live here? Aside from the fact that we are like an hour from the nearest beach, unfortunately. But Brisbane's great. I think we have more of a, uh, a natural uh, results type of market in terms of we don't have that overblown look or reputation that perhaps the Gold Coast does or some certain areas of Sydney. I think it's definitely... Um, not quite as an affluent market as maybe what I hear from my fellow injectors in Sydney. Our prices are a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit more relaxed, and I think it's a changing market because we have seen a massive shift in our population since COVID, with the exodus from down south coming up to the north. So we've seen, you know, a, a change in in the type of people moving to Brisbane to escape you know, COVID and prices. So it's a real changing market post-COVID as well. So it's still settling, I think, but definitely more natural results, probably a little less um, uh, pri- more of a price focus up here, I would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, I went to Brisbane a few years ago. I used to sort of go to the the Kalil and, and work at Kylo for a little bit. And yeah. It did feel. I mean, that that part of Brisbane's lovely. Like, it feels pretty fancy and sort of high end. But people describe Brisbane to me as like a big country town, which I didn't really understand because uh-huh. I didn't go into sort of the, you know the main part of Brisbane. But now you guys have got the Olympics and there's lots of infrastructure being built. It's it's kind of growing, isn't it? It's becoming more cosmopolitan and kind of on par with a big city. I mean, it might take ten years or or more to grow, but it, it's got that feel. I thought.
2: I de- yeah, definitely. I always kind of felt like Brisbane was a little bit like a, an immature Melbourne in mm. that we have a fair bit of culture around it. We've got the food scene. But we have nice beaches. Um, and, it's yeah, it's definitely that big, te- big country town growing towards a city, mm. becoming more and more cosmopolitan with places like the Carlisle and some beautiful Insta-worthy places, great food, great cultural things, yeah, mm-hmm. but quite a relaxed lifestyle, like a very outdoorsy lifestyle without yeah. the big city feel, I think is great. And without the traffic.
0: Yeah, well, it's Oh, yeah, the traffic was a breeze (laughs) compared to here. Um, I was going to ask, so you mentioned, you know, the prices might be a little bit lower than, say, Sydney. Fair enough. But how would you say the last six months has been? Um, You know, we've spoken to lots of injectors about, you know, how busy have you been, what your takings like, what what did your end of year look like and so on. How would you rate where you are?
1: Compared to what, the same period last year? yeah,
0: compared to, yeah, exactly. But but before what we would call the tail off of last year, Mm. I mean, did, did you notice that or not? Because I know you're an experienced, busy injector, so maybe you didn't personally see it.
2: Yeah, I think I think on par for me with with last year's kind of um, metrics, I do think there has been a little bit of a slowing down in the industry, more so what I'm seeing with my patients is reschedules mm-hmm. and probably pushing things out just a little bit longer than they might usually have, mm-hmm. possibly a little less filler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but definitely it's still, um, anti-wrinkle is still a popular treatment and always will be, but maybe just spreading them out. We, I don't know about where you guys are, but we are seeing a big influx in COVID cases. Again, at the moment, it's quite prevalent uh, in the community. So there are a few people having to reschedule from COVID or unable to have treatments until they're well and, and a period of time passes. But in terms of the industry, yeah, I think it's probably tailoring off. Um we will be probably seeing changes in the interest rates hopefully this year, which I'm hoping might have an effect for the better. But are we going to see all of those people that come off their fixed mortgage rates that are going to have to, you know, cut their discretionary spending with the increasing cost of living? It, mm-hmm. It's a really it's going to be an interesting time over the next six to twelve months. I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: On your chats with uh, your mentees, David, mm-hmm. have you noticed any yeah. particular? focus of difficulties any particular state or is it just general it's
1: a systemic it's a systemic trend Mm. and even as far as overseas it's it's fairly similar i mean so you've got exceptions to the rural people with extremely busy and well-established clinics with deep databases who seem to just be moving along relatively unaffected in terms of cash flow and money coming in but there is still a shift within how that money's being spent so when you analyze their PLs and their CRM data, there's definitely a shift away from large filler volumes and other products starting to take their place. So, you know, collagen stimulators, your bioremodeling, all that kind of thing. So people are sort of adapting to that, but but in addition, there are people that are pushing out their treatments. So it's not only them moving away from sort mm-hmm. of such high filler volumes, they're looking to spread out their treatment, yeah. their treatment time. So I think there's a lot of factors going on. As I've said many times before, you've got obviously all the external factors that are beyond our control, which is what's going on around the world, interest rates, inflation, which is difficult for us to have any impact on at an individual level. Then you've got the industry issues, which are increased regulation, which is making things more difficult, rightly or wrongly, that's a separate discussion. And then you've got increased competition and patients becoming more savvy and more discerning as well. So there's a lot of different factors. Mm -hmm. You know more products coming onto the marketplace, so there's a there's a lot of stuff going on, but as kelly said, i think I think the next six to twelve months are going to be potentially difficult for people or at least challenging so as I've said many times before on the, on on this show is that you know now is the time to really get a handle on on your financials and, and have a plan for for tough times because being prepared is is not a big deal if it doesn't eventuate the way that we're fearing that it may then it might then there's no, there's no loss really, yep. but sort of not thinking about it. And then it happens. <laughs> That's sort of when You're not prepared for yeah. it. That's when things happen. So, but Kelly, I mean, just to sort of touch on that, how are you sort of dealing with the decrease in fillers and, and what, what's your thought on that? Do you think it's a good thing? And do you think it's being driven by consumers and patients starting to recognize they don't want that over-augmented look? Do you think it's just people tightening the wallet a little bit? or do you think it's now the fact that injectors are starting to push back and become more discerning and leaning on other tools, other products?
2: Yeah, I think it's multifactorial. I think it's all of those things. I think that we're seeing um, a lot of overfilled faces, a lot of over-augmented lips and really unnatural results. And I mean, if I had a dollar off every patient that said, don't give me duck lips, you know, we'd all be rich, right? So, that um, fear of being overdone is certainly driving the probable decline in uh, dermal fillers per se. There's also um, the fact that people are hopefully starting to focus a little bit more on skin and mm-hmm. skin quality, skin skin improvement treatment. So I think that the diversification of the treatments that we now offer is is. Proving to have that decline in dermal fillers, anti-wrinkle, I think will always be there because mm-hmm. I don't know that anything will be able to replace that. Mm. But dermal fillers, I think that we can improve skin quality and get nice natural results with just a smaller amount of revolumization with dermal fillers. So, yeah, I think, I think the results that we see out on the street that are unnatural, I think the celebrity results that are unnatural, um, cost of living is certainly impacting because. I'm sure we all see those patients that come in that say, my husband doesn't know, so I've been, you know, stop piling my money until I can afford to get this done. But now they might not be able to put that money aside to have their secret treatment. Mm-hmm. So we might see less and less of those types mm-hmm. of treatments or patients coming in. But, yeah, it's definitely multifactorial.
1: Yeah. And, and what sort of steps or, I guess, response to this have you taken in your clinic to sort of keep, keep moving forward? Because we, what's all we aim for every year, right, is sort of a, a growth a growth tra- a growth trajectory in the upward direction so yeah how, how have you sort of combated that
2: yeah i tried to take um a real holistic look at my patient mm. and and talk a lot about sort of skin quality as well as just multi-modality approach mm. so if they're not into doing dermal fillers i'm actually having a real moment with lower face anti-wrinkle and i think jake you would know as you go through your career you sort of you have favourite treatments for a little while, and then you move on to your next favourite, and you suggest those types of things. So, anti-wrinkle, particularly jawline, nephritid type stuff, is really big for my clients at the moment, and that's actually taking away from the lower face dermal fillers, which I think is probably a good thing and minimizing that heaviness. So, um, steering my patients uh, appropriately towards other treatments. My client base is typically a little bit older. I don't tend to have that younger early 20 um 20 year old client base with with sort of 35 plus generally um so they're more into skin quality and yeah just trying to look at other modalities plus i mean i am in a very um lucky position or from hard work not luck but um i do do the training so you know there's as much or more training happening these days so I, I feel very uh, lucky that I, I'm not noticing too much of a shift financially because I'm busy enough with the training. So when I see a dip in the clinical side of things, the training kind of props up the business. So I, I guess I'm in a very um, blessed position there.
0: So that's a good segue into the training. Um, a lot of our Injector Diaries episodes sort of have a, a bit of a, a slant or a topic and we discussed that, you know, you'd like to talk about training. So first of all, how do you balance... your your work life with your training how much do you do who are you training for like just give us a flavor of what it means to be a trainer i guess
2: yeah so i probably do training once or twice a week um and that varies sometimes it's not at all um but generally once probably twice a week um up until sort of the end of last year i was doing a bit of national training um and i was sort of planning on reining that in a little bit this year for, for a few reasons. But I had a background in training for um, uh, emergency as well as when I was rural and remote I used to train advanced Life Support and Peds Life Support. So my background is education. I love it. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I trained for Hugh Gel, the um, uh, pharma company, as well as a company called Health Cert, which is an um, uh, educational um, uh, company for doctors, nurses, and dentists in a broad range of things, including dermatology and in aesthetics, as well as I do private mentoring. So I um, just kind of fell into doing some training with Face Academy back in the day, which now has become Cura. Um, the lovely Robin Curran is absolutely amazing. Hmm. Um, and then from there, I started doing some um, studio work and health cert- and. Years ago, before I was with the pharma company, I saw a gap in that um, when you train with a pharma company, you get that biased uh, training because it is actually product information training, really. It's not actually teaching you to become an injector. Mm -hmm. I think the industry has morphed, and I hear a lot that contact the pharma companies, they'll train you for free, but we need to remember that their actual job is to train you on the product and not to become an injector. So I thought that the one-on-one mentoring I started to do was really about supporting someone in a really calm one-on-one environment, focusing on what they particularly want, um, cannula, needle, different techniques. And it gave me a lot more time to spend with that person so that they could really understand what we were doing. Pharma training and even the health cert stuff, it can be very time limited and very rushed. So you don't really get the in-depth stuff that you can do with one-on-one. So, yeah, I have a real passion for making people feel comfortable, confident, and real safety basis. Safety, safety, safety. Um, I'm all about anatomy. What little I know, so
1: yeah, yeah. And what's your I'm trying to think how to frame this in a in a politically correct way? What What is your general thought on new injectors that are coming into the space in terms of their expectations on what this industry is going to do for them? their motivations for actually being here in the first place and then their base level of skill. What are your thoughts mm. on
2: that? Yeah, I think this is something we're going to see change while it's proposed to change possibly with the new APRA guideline. But I do strongly believe as someone who has a very strong clinical um, background that having a year or two in a clinical role of healthcare, be it in the hospital, GP, whatever it might be, actually gives you a really good foundation of health states, how to talk to patients, how to recognize deteriorating patients, how to understand when things are going wrong, how to escalate them, do handovers, and a a lot of that clinical stuff that when you're a new person coming straight into this industry, for doctors, they have to do an internship year within the hospital. So they are able to consolidate their learning in that first year before they can go and practice. I find it a little bit troublesome when you have spent three years at uni and your only hands-on time is those practical supported um, uh, sessions. Then you open a clinic and practice independently. And we really don't know what we don't know. And I think the fact that they practice in silo with only other injectors that they get help from, from certain um, forums, they don't often know their knowledge and experience behind the advice that they're getting given. And I think there's a real flaw within that and potential risk to public safety personally. So I think the best way to do it is, is spend a couple of years, consolidate your nursing knowledge, your Um, health information, medical conditions, drugs, all of that sort of stuff, what to do when things go wrong so that you're not going to panic if you have a vascular occlusion or or whatever. And then work in an environment where you're supported and you can ask questions. And then from there, you would go to have your own clinic, I think. Mm. Um, I think we're doing things a little bit backwards nowadays. They're opening a clinic and then getting the information.
3: Mm.
0: So let's ask you the big question that we frequently come back to, so they've done their two years in clinic or hospital, they've done all that stuff. What should a new injector be doing to train and become competent? Like you see lots of new injectors, but at what point can we say, oh yeah, we can take the stabilizers off now, you're ready to go. I can step away, stop holding your hand and you're, you're good to go. How, how should we do that? that? That's really what all these new regulations are kind of dancing around, I think. And David and I have spoken about this and debated till we're blue in the face about what would we do if we had the power. And it seems to be that no one can actually say what does it mean to be qualified as an injector? What does it mean to be safe? And what does it mean to be competent?
2: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I have a very um, clear-cut view on that coming through the hospital sector for so many years where it's all by the book and this policy procedure around everything. So for me, I think it's actually... APRA need to step up and actually quantify and qualify what appropriate training is. So we need to have an accredited, agreed upon national standard of education, whatever courses that might be that um, gain APRA or TGA or whoever's accreditation. And then you do that course and then you would go and do some kind of internship where I think that you kept possibly a logbook on your treatments, you did reflective practice, You had a mentor all along and then you would do, for example, you came into the industry, you would need to do um, you know, facial assessments times 10 with your mentor, and then you go off and do it by yourself. Then you would do upper face anti-wrinkle times 10 with your mentor and then you know go off and do it by yourself. And you would get ticked off on all of these little steps along the way. I think that that might be a good way to do it, that you would progress through and you got signed off and and eventually when you had completed your portfolio. I mean, this is what we do for nursing with IV cannulation. You do so many... Under a you do a practice on an, uh, a fake arm, you do it assisted, you do it independent, and then you're good to go. Mm. So, I would like to personally see something very formal, very clear cut, because I think what APRA are saying in their proposed guideline is that you must do appropriate training <laughs> without any clarification of what that is. It doesn't actually exist. Yes, the consensus paper by Greg Goodman and all of the KOLs clearly outlined the four different. Uh, levels of um, dermal filler treatments um, and which was like a lower risk moderate risk high risk very high risk yeah and that maybe could be used that consensus could be used as our pathway of you start off on the low risk then you move to the moderate and you know you move forward like that when you get assessed and ticked off i think there's absolute um you know practical issues with how you would implement that. I don't know how you would implement that for the volume of people. And I think that the people that are currently injecting would probably be wise to look at doing some kind of course now to have it under your belt so that if these guidelines come in, I think what APRA possibly might do that they might say from 2030, if you don't have a qualification, you will no longer be able to inject. So you've got until then to get this qualification. So Mm. I'd be looking at personally doing some kind of course. Um, I know HealthCert run three Mm. different levels of aesthetic medicine course. AACDS do them. Um, There's a few around that you're probably aware of. I would have a few of those courses under my belt in the near future Mm. um, just to future-proof my career. Yeah. Because APRA are going to look more favorably if you have these certificates under your belt, you've been working towards it, than someone who has done zero.
0: I mean, I, I agree, but it's almost like, well, we're, we've got limited time and most people have got limited budget. So can't we, can't, can't we just be told this is the course and then we will do it and we satisfy, you know, that criteria who, of...
2: who course is it?
0: Well, I, I agree, we don't know because there's so many providers and and, you know, I'm a little bit cynical of, not because I don't agree that the training should be done, but it seems like everyone wants their own course, mm. uh, and and and, yeah. there, and there's an incentive there because it's commercial as well as you know providing a service of training. <laughs> so I'd happily do a course tomorrow if I knew oh that's the one that I should be doing and that's the one that ARPR is going to tell mm. me I should do. Got no no qualms with that, but I don't want to go and do even say a masters in whichever university to be told well it doesn't count. Wasted three years of your life and fifty grand. Mm. That's just silly, isn't it?
2: Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like you don't know which one you should do or you shouldn't do. So maybe start with a shorter course with a less of a financial in- investment. Cause I actually see that APRA will recognise that you're you're doing something mm. rather than not having anything. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's a it's a very tricky one to know what to do. But that that that's my kind of thoughts that I would be doing perhaps the smaller courses to get me started.
3: Yeah, it's
2: and then I like education, so study is fun for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe we could get the podcast certified for CPD, yeah. and then and, and that will cover everyone.
2: <laughs> that would be great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what putting restrictions on certain words are going to do to actually make patients safer.
0: Can so, you qualify for the people? Okay, don't so know? If, we're, if
1: we're talking about like what's happened recently, and I think it was yesterday, it was announced. Yeah. The, well, the APrA guidelines now have become even more stringent around being even able to use terms like dermal filler or anti wrinkle. So. I understand What was the rationale? Well, isn't it because it sort of infers that it's a scheduled medication, so the inference is now enough not not to be able to use that word. So my first question would be, can we see the data that is driving these laws or these legislations to be passed that are warranted? It's like, where are all the people that are getting really bad outcomes? Can Can we see the data first of all to understand what's driving this? If there is a real issue and there are lots of things going wrong, then is actually putting our focus on restricting what words people can use to advertise. Whilst I agree it should be regulated, I'm not saying I disagree with it, but I'm saying in order of priority, making the industry safer, in my mind, just using basic common sense, would be to actually make the people that are doing the job better at what they do. (laughs) So, I mean, you don't make the roads safer by putting restrictions on what kind of cars get sold. You You make people safer on the road by making people have to pass an exam and display confidence that they're a safe driver on the road, and having a, like a universally accepted training pathway to become a safe driver. So I don't understand it's why. The, people. Yeah, so I don't understand why they're doing it backwards. It's almost like it's a knee jerk response to a lot of negative media publicity to make it look like actually something's being done, but I don't actually understand. I don't think it's actually going to make a material difference to how safe. Patients are. That's just my personal opinion, and people might disagree. just—I
0: I, I don't know who's lobbying specifically. And I know there are multiple bodies yeah. and 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 uh, colleges and whoever. Mm. It just feels like the advice that are are given. Presumably, they're being given advice. It's very slanted in a particular way that always feels like it's about reducing competition, but not improving safety, patient safety. Yeah. It
2: always think, feels
0: like that, yeah. It's it's weird. So, I'm, yeah,
1: it
2: very much feels like the people that are giving the advice don't understand the industry. So it would be really nice to see transparency as to who the consultation is being sought by, because they've clearly stated that they sought consultation for this proposed guide or this guideline. But who who is giving the guideline? Because they don't clearly don't understand the industry. And like you said, David, it's not the right way of. Um, promoting patient safety, They're completely going about it the wrong way. So it, it just seems like the, the advice is. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's our tax dollars that are paying their salaries. So I think we have a, <laughs> we have a right to transparency. I mean, that seems fair to me. But anyway. Oh, yeah. I, was, I just
0: want to ask you, Kelly, yeah. I don't know if you know the answer. So my understanding was we had a, a, a round of um, new regulation 1st of July last year. And then my understanding was they, they sort of intimated that there's going to be a new round of regulation coming at some point. And we had the next few months for people to submit their ideas and um, sort of feedback to ARPRA. But this thing that came out last night apparently actually came into law sixteenth of December out of nowhere. It seems yeah, almost so, deliberately covert. I just I, I don't understand it.
2: Yeah, I guess it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because they said that on the I think it was the eighteenth of December that their website was updated to remove all wording of anti uh, wrinkle and dermal fillers. However, there is still a pamphlet on there that clearly states that you can use those words it is dated 2018, but it's still there. So the TGA, it seems like the TGA and APRA aren't really talking to each other, even though they're trying to regulate the same kind of thing in the mm. same industry that they're, they're almost at odds with, with what they're saying, because APRA has said that we need to be clear about what treatments our before and afters have had and make it um, transparent for the consumer that this treatment has been done. And TGA is saying you can't really tell them what the treatment is. Mm. So they seem very at odds to me. It was uh, uh, really funny.
0: Um, In the letter from ARPRA that went online yesterday and everyone lost their shit on Instagram, they addressed it to, it's very strangely worded, Dear Cosmetic Injection and Beauty Group. And then it goes yeah. on to say what you can't do, i.e. infer that you're using a scheduled drug, but the fact mm. that they are addressing us as cosmetic injection people suggests that you're injecting yeah. something. Yeah, it's like, well, how far yeah. do we take this wording to stop implying that we're using drugs? If you're going to call us yeah. injectors, yeah, I
2: think it, like
1: it's actually, I think you but they, did send, mm.
2: they did send that letter to different groups, and the the title of who it was addressed to changed the group that they sent it to so Mm. that was obviously that i don't know what that group is the cosmetic injectors and beauty group but there was another one to the cosmetic nurses association that was addressed appropriately plus it talks about doctors prescribing there's no word of nurse practitioners prescribing so does that mean i'm exempt from that or Mm. you know like they're not very clear Mm. um again with like with apra it's not clear what yeah. you're
1: supposed to do. Uh, and I wonder at what point does this become an anti-competitive issue and someone actually gets lawyers involved because I, I do feel it will reach a point of ridiculousness soon where people are going to say, well, how do I actually advertise what I do? How am I going to make an income if I can't actually advertise it? Like, how much further does this go? I mean, how far does the, in- does the restriction on, on an inference mean? If you put like a photo up of a needle, is that going to be an inference that you're There's doing a cosmetic made. injectable? I mean, yeah. I don't know. You're going to eventually have to have your shop front blacked out and people just could have to walk in and just guess that like this is fast, what drives people going down like, the black market though doesn't yeah, it how, fa- how fast is going to go i mean and, and again it's not actually increasing safety all it's doing is just strangling strangulating an industry without any practical
0: yeah the patients are still going to be seeking of, treatments they just know
1: less about them yeah or they'll go overseas to a, to a completely unregulated place and get everything done
2: this is an industry where our consumers are the most educated around what we do of any health Treatment that there possibly can be. You know, they are constantly being given education, and for the most part, it's really valid and high quality education. Whereas people are going in for heart surgery, knee surgery, and they have no idea about it because the information isn't there. So they should be promoting this that we are educating our patients. Some of it might be dubious, but we are at least educating to a high level these patients about what they're going to have done and put in their body and things like that. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that they don't like the education yeah. side of it.
1: I find it interesting that they're worried about patient safety so much, yet the same government allows cigarettes to be sold in supermarkets yep. and petrol and stations and vapes. That's, <laughs> and vapes and everything else that we know is not good for you, but all of a sudden injecting someone with a cosmo. Anyway, we'll move on from that. But talking about... Um, training and education, I, I, I'm of the opinion that this is a specialty, even though it isn't classified as yeah. one yet. So if you were to go and do you know, orthopedic surgery or plastic surgery or dermatology, to me, what's become apparent, especially in the last 10 years, that this is a really complex area of medicine. It's not just squirting yeah. jelly or, or a toxin into someone's muscle or into a certain plane in their skin. There's a lot of science behind this. You really need to understand what you're doing. There's, there's a human component too and a communication component. Um, uh, uh, element to it as well and when I look at the way that even some of the training schools that you've, that you've spoken about which I know the ones you're talking about and we've actually had them on the podcast before, they're very good I still wonder whether or not we're trying to teach people too much too quickly and so I'm going to ask you a, a question now, if you were to look at your CRM data what percentage of your treatments are anti-wrinkle versus dermal filler versus other roughly, just give me a ballpark or if you had to, if you had a full day of patients 65. Sorry, 65%.
2: 65% is probably anti-wrinkle. I'm, yeah. I'm a big anti-wrinkle uh, treatment. Um, filler, I'd probably say 35%. Um, so that's 100 No, let's say 55% <laughs> anti-wrinkle, 35% dermal filler, and 10% skin at the yeah. moment. And I'm trying to improve that skin. But I'm certainly not a massive... Dermal filler purely because I am moving a little bit away from that yeah. myself. I don't like the overdone look. Um, and personally, I'm you know in that menopause, perimenopausal age group. so skin is becoming a bit more mm. of a big focus for me and for my client base.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I mean, even even at fifty five or sixty percent, that's like over half of your treatments are anti wrinkle. And, and the people that I talk to, it's it's actually a lot higher than that. Most people when they look at their data. At least 70 to 75% of the treatments that they do are anti-wrinkle based. And so why are we trying to teach people everything within a few days? Why are we not saying to people, we're going to focus on anatomy and getting you good at anti-wrinkle for the first year. Let's not even talk about dermal fillers. Let's not talk about collagen stimulators. Let's get you actually to master a skill set. You don't walk into like an operating theater jake yeah. and do a surgery all on your own like for the first time you like Not for a long time they don't you teach don't. you how to do something in three days this takes you how many years does it take to do a specialty three four years uh, longer than that because yeah.
0: you know everything stacks up over the years and your registrar yeah. and then your senior registrar and then your consultant so yeah it takes donkey jeans. so
1: why, why aren't we slow rolling people on the education if i was a business owner now and i wasn't in a franchise and i had the ability to set my own training program i'd be saying to people Guess what? We're doing anti wrinkle for the first twelve months. That's all we're doing, because that's seventy yeah. percent of the treatments that are coming through my door anyway. And I want you to get really good at that because a, I think tox is probably not given the respect that it deserves in terms of understanding, you know, elevated depressor relationship, anatomy, getting comfortable with different toxins, different dilutions, different shape faces, different age groups, different ethnicities, and then we're just like 100%. all of it we're trying to shove. And how? How do? You, and this is when people. give up and quit the industry because they're like I must be stupid I don't understand all this stuff I'm I'm overwhelmed I'm scared I'm going to get a complication why don't we slow things down so I'm keen to see what you think about that and what you think about that Jake because Mm. it seems sensible
0: to me Um, Kelly first
2: I think it's a Business decision personally, I see some enormous injectors come that have been employed by businesses, and the business is pushing them to learn everything and to add everything, including noses from the get-go, which horrifies me. I wouldn't personally like to see people start off with the basics, solid, consolidate the basics, but not only that, start with the anatomy, start mm-hmm. with the safety, learn how to dissolve filler before you actually put it in the face, but take a step back, understand um, anaphylaxis. What are the signs of that? Because that's the biggest, scariest thing that possibly will happen and will kill you. Vascular occlusion will not. Um, So I think I agree we're doing things backwards and that's why I – really enjoy my mentoring because i can slow it down mm. i can really consolidate people and get them going with the basics and then say well let's let's review everything in a month to six weeks after you've done x amount of treatments and then we'll move forward and i don't think that you move forward based on a time-based thing yeah. i think you move forward with your um increasing your clinical skill based on your knowledge of anatomy and your knowledge of the drug uh, um facial assessment so many people come yeah. to me, they want to learn temples after five minutes because they feel like they need to do temples before they can do anything else. Say, well, tell me about the anatomy in the temple, yeah. no one can. So, until you can tell me the anatomy in the temple, I will not train you in that. Yeah, um, and same with nasal labial, they're all learning nasal labial fold in their two day training course where they poke a needle in, a, you know, after the second needle on, yeah. second time on the needle, they're doing a nasal labial. Yeah. I think that's really, um inappropriate and i think it's dangerous and probably um uh, not not the best practice so i really try to slow people down personally
3: yeah
2: how you can do it on the grand scale and it's a little bit hard with pharma training because people come with the idea that they're going to train a certain tech a certain area on the day and the patient's not suitable Mm -hmm. so i treat patients in whatever setting based on their presenting need not the trainer not the clinician's desire to learn Treatment.
1: And what about, being a, what about being able to actually demonstrate competence and pass some sort of exam or, or, or sort of test? I mean, isn't that what you have to do, Jake? Yeah, when you- <laughs> yeah look,
0: I, I agree with everything that Kelly yeah. said. And I think it. the reason it is backwards is one, commercial pressure and, you know, clinics okay. need injectors up and running as quickly as possible. But also, because there isn't that qualification or standard to aim towards, you just go, you just so, you, you know, who's judging how good you are when you can make some money? Well, I mean, that's terrible to say, but that, that, that is reality. So, isn't this really what opera should be f- focusing on? Well, if you're
1: worried about safety. It shouldn't, wouldn't this let, be... Let's
0: invite on. If anyone from Arpra is listening, please contact us. Information's down below. We'd love to have a chat with you.
1: Yeah, uh, may, maybe there's a valid reason and I'm stupid and I don't understand. I'm happy, I'm always happy to admit that I was wrong and that I, and I don't know what I'm talking about and, and be shown new evidence and I'll change
0: my mind. Yeah. So, Show- <laughs> We speak to all of the stakeholders on this podcast so we yeah. can tell you what people think and want and need. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an open invitation.
3: Yeah,
1: but what do you think about the slow rolling of training? I mean, do you, th- I mean you do to. a lot of training. I mean, Look, yeah. um,
0: if, if we all agree that this is medicine, which it is, and we have patients, not clients, and that yeah. whole argument, yeah, this should be no different to anything that you learn clinically. And Kelly said she had a logbook to do the most basic things, IV cannulas, taking blood, whatever it may be. I had the same. When I was in surgery, had a logbook. I was scrutinized, I was made to feel stupid if I couldn't do anything of the 20 steps of whatever yeah. operation and you'd have to get up at the end of the year or in fact every semester and be stood in front of a panel to look at your logbook and they would point out all your flaws or where you're good and you learn. Mm-hmm. That, that That's what mentorship and, and, and medicine is all about, right? Yeah. You're not going to learn everything in a day and sometimes these things take 10, 15 years to master if you're going to do surgery or something complex. But... You know, I think when we had Stephen, Davin, Jacinta yeah. and Michael Moulton on the yeah. podcast, I did say, hey, wouldn't it be cool one day if we could get to a point where we all had a logbook and I could look back every year and look at how many temples I've done or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And I think everyone kind of poo-pooed it as mm-hmm. unrealistic. No one said it was silly, but they just said it's not going to happen. Yeah. But why not? I mean, if you're a new injector, wouldn't that be the best way of having evidence to say, I do have competence because out of the 100 anti-wrinkle treatments I've done this year, I've only had three complications. One was a bruise, one was a ptosis, and one was a this. And these are the learning points because I've spoken about it with my mentor. Mm. You know, it's logical. Yeah. And it's actually quite easy to do. The problem is, how do you scale mm. mentorship? And, how, well, you know, people like uh, Kelly are hard to come by. No one's that willing to give their time unless there's money involved. And well, that's just a brutal reality of, of our industry.
1: There's a way, there's many ways to skin the cat. I mean, I, I think that what you're saying, I mean, <clears throat> you can make it work. I mean, if you were to find a mentor and you potentially pay them or give them a percentage of your billing for a certain period of time, especially if it's within an organization, this was the sort of thing when I was involved in. In the chain clinic model, this is something I went to them and said, "Hey, you should identify who your top five percent of injectors are within your within your business, and actually set them up as mentors, and actually start taking on the new people that come into this business." I was there in
0: that meeting, yeah, with you.
1: and they just they just looked at me like I was a moron, and I am a moron, but maybe <laughs> yeah. occasionally I have a good idea, yeah. but that makes sense to me. Why would you not take your best people and most people that get into medicine or nursing get into it to help people? Yeah, and so if you can. And I guess it's also career satisfaction. It helps. I think also when you start teaching someone something, it makes you better at what you're doing because
0: you've got to like- 100%. You've
1: got to almost like you're relearning it as you're explaining it and solidifying ideas in your mind. Yeah. So I think, look, if the willingness is there, I think there are ways to commercially make it viable.
0: Yeah. Maybe we could speak offline, Kelly and David as well and, Mm. and talk about- how this could be scaled as a IA mentorship, or we don't have to call it IA mentorship, but identify some mentors who are happy to do that. Obviously there's some compensation from the mentee, but at least give people an avenue with sensible people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, why not? Let's throw it out there. Yeah. Let's you heard it here first.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Kelly, what were you going to say? I think it's a, a fantastic
2: bit, yeah. idea. I just think that the the roadblocks to it, and I think what you said, David, is absolutely I deal scenario but the roadblocks are now that we have thousands of very small clinics the client base is dilute instead Mm -hmm. of having a few bigger clinics where you you could quite easily run that model of mentorship Um, and certainly the way that I learned in a clinic with other people it's not happening as much anymore because we've got you know one solo injector with a very small client base and lots of little solo injectors out there so it, it makes it really hard to to have that mentorship model. I, I've thought many a times that I would like a mentorship programming like a, like an apprenticeship mm-hmm. in injectables where you touch yeah. base, you had those feedback sessions, or debriefs. Um, and I did some training with Nikki, who was your last injector diary. Yeah, uh, yes. And um she yeah, she contacts me and we talk about uh, certain cases and and um, give her feedback. And, and that's a really good, you know, mentoring relationship. I get something out of every – training session I do and hopefully they do as well. So, it, it's rewarding for yeah. sure, like
3: you said.
1: Yeah. I, I think that all of these solo injectors that have sort of gone out into the into the industry and opened up their own businesses, I don't know whether that's going to be something that's going to be sustainable. And it's not like I'm wishing anyone out of yeah, business yeah. at all. I wish everyone the very best. But I don't think that it's i don't i think the, the the industry is still maturing and i think it's going to find its its sort of equilibrium equilibrium i don't think we're there yet i think we've seen the floodgates open for nurses to go and uh, you know operate independently which is fantastic but i think the people that aren't or shouldn't be in the industry or in it for the wrong reasons or aren't good at what they do they they won't survive so i'm think i'm sort of thinking about what does this industry look like in 2 to 5 years from now have we sort of has the industry sort of stabilized, and those people have gone back and worked for other people, or are no longer in the space because they shouldn't have been here in the first place? I think we will see some kind mm. of balancing out. What do you think, Joe?
0: Yeah, um, you know, with the regulation, and I, I think, like you said, there's been a huge expansion of uh, nurse injectors, but also solo injectors, yeah. and and maybe there'll be a slight contraction where people start grouping together and working bit more collaboratively yeah. which would be a good like thing like they shared working spaces
3: potentially yeah, 100%. yeah,
0: there's plenty of plenty of ways to get it done and maybe you Definitely. know i think we've touched on some of the chains have sort of grown so big that even they're slightly contracting with closing some yeah. uh, chains been as a well. few
1: yeah there's a, there's a, quite a few of them that are that are struggling now i think because i mm. have they have struggled to hold on to their talent mm. and it doesn't matter how good your business model yeah. is or how convenient location is or how great your clinic looks or how cheap your prices are if you ain't got the people on the seats doing the, the, the job then it's going to be difficult to sustain
0: yeah I just want to ask you Kelly because you work for Hugel as well which, sorry you consult for Um h- how do you find training for a you know a pharma company versus you know on your own because a sort of joke but you sort of you've, you've got handcuffs on when you work for a pharma company because you've got to speak the party line very compliant uh you've got to sort of obey medicines australia and on label treatments it, it's quite different and it's it's not a criticism but it's just a different um sort of way of doing yeah. things so how, do you struggle with that or, or do you just find it sort of putting on a different hat and it's okay
2: Listen, yes no. I mean, I think you, you definitely are constrained to the um, company line to a degree. But I, I genuinely love their products, and I use them personally in my clinic. Um, so I, I think that the products—I uh, think that all products on the market are great. I, I particularly like theirs. I use them. I don't feel that there's any kind of conflict of my personal morals or ethical beliefs in training for them. Mm. I do feel time constrained with the training times and when i do the mentoring i'm very clear about you know where that person is in their career and what we're going to do whereas people will come to training sessions under pharma and um, with ideas of doing certain um, areas and treatments but i'm, I'm lucky and that Hugel have supported me to say no we won't be training temples for you today you're not ready or it's inappropriate on this model yeah. so i do feel very supported by them to um Uh, use my clinical judgment but yeah you people need to remember that it is pharma training it's product training not necessarily teaching you to become an injector i think that's where we need to really kind of be mindful of in terms of where you get your training from
0: yeah fair enough um talking about products and stuff are there any treatments that you do or or sort of say don't like doing in your clinic is anything that is off your menu that you just say no i'm not doing noses (laughs) okay I mean, you know, it's um, reasonably obvious, but what, what, I mean, did you used to do them or did you have a problem or have you just?
2: No, um, I've never done noses. I don't have a desire to do them, to be honest. I do think that they're significantly high risk mm-hmm. and I think I, I'm busy enough with the, the areas and the treatments that I do. I don't have a demand for them. It's not something that I would be doing on a regular basis. Yeah. So for me, Those high-risk areas, I would like to see somebody, I would send my patients to someone who does it regularly um, and therefore is more um, appropriate clinically to do that treatment. So noses for me are off the table. Um, I'm also somebody who I like to sit back and watch and wait when a new treatment comes in. I don't jump into things straight away. Um, Lifting threads I sort of experimented with, but I decided I didn't particularly want to do them. And um, trap talks is not for me either. I mm-hmm. think that there's possibly some long-term complications potentially from atrophying a muscle, a skeletal muscle of posture, when we're in an epidemic of um, neck issues from mobile phone use, tablet use, whatever. Yeah. So for me, I don't really do that one. Fair enough.
0: That's pretty reasonable, I think. Yeah, seems not not
1: unusual. It's a, a lot of people have similar. Thought processes and treatments that they emit from their menu, so no surprises there, I think.
0: Yeah, um, presumably your favourite toxin is a Hugel brand toxin.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I look, prior to training for Hugel, I've been doing it for about uh, uh, sorry three years with Hugel. I was a big Gabderma person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all toxins are great. I really do. Uh, I do like Platibo these days. I do think it kicks in very quickly on majority of my patients. I mm-hmm. get really good longevity um i do use the odd um bit of disport here and there and i have one patient who i use them and on she loves it; she gets great results so i think all products are great but Latibo is definitely my favorite right now
0: fair enough and what about filler from whatever portfolio what's your favorite
2: yeah again i i mean i'm training for you just, so i do use their products uh the chroma range of fillers i like them i think it's a uh, quite a, a simple range and as a business owner there's a lot of benefits to it so i really like them good predictable results they get great longevity um the syringe in particular uh, for female hands i find really easy to use so that's mm. probably the biggest benefit for me mm. some of the other syringes are really long and i find them hard to navigate
1: yeah okay. just think just think sort of Side question, a lot of young injectors that I talk to these days are starting to develop issues with their injecting hand, thumbs and all sorts of yeah. sort of repetitive strain injuries. For someone that's been injecting for 20 years, how have you avoided the injury? Have you learned to use both hands or do you have a, a, like a, a hint or a tip for avoiding sort of RSI yeah. or sort of, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure no. enjoy, yeah I
2: haven't quite been injecting 20 years but um, <laughs> I think it's really about um, – uh, it's how you use your syringe, like where you place the pressure, whether you're going to use the tip of your thumb or the base of your thumb yeah. and making sure that you – it's like a squeezing motion. You're not really driving your thumb in as you inject. So plus all of the body mechanics you need to remember because we know that nurses have nurse's back issues and 20 years of nursing of nurse's back. So putting your position in – um, standing in a position that is ergonomic for you um, – for long term, it's probably more of the issue, I think, is neck pain, back pain. Um, but yeah, just use your syringe correctly, choose the right product for the right area. Um, yeah. And if you're struggling to inject, I think Volux is quite significant uh, extrusion force, isn't it, Jake? So that might be the one that causes. Uh, it's a lot actually of the grief.
0: not. It's um, essentially equivalent to Voluma. So, you know, the, the, all of the Vicross range, I don't use the um, Hyla Cross range, but Vicross range. It's well-liked, one, obviously because of nice results, but also it's got a pretty good extrusion force. But, you know, this isn't bagging any other brand, but some of the other brands, you know, I've used to use them years ago in the UK. They're stiff as hell. And, you know, I I can understand if you're using that product all day for cheeks and jaws and chins, you'd have a sore thumb by the end of the day. It's just logical. Mm. So you know, don't pick any brand. Try try a few of them and, and just see the difference mm-hmm. because there is a big difference. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, if Chrome has got a smaller syringe, maybe try that. I don't know. I've, I've not seen their syringes. Mm.
3: Um,
0: yeah. But, you know, and don't struggle. You see so many injectors, like you said, they're sort of bent over, sort of crouching <laughs> over at an angle. Like Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always learned, and, you know, from yeah. surgery, bring the patient to you. So the right height and, and you get close yes. to the bed and, you know as yeah. upright as you can be it's never perfect but you know you're going to be doing this for 10-15 patients a day for the next 25 years mm-hmm. you're going to screw yourself if, if you don't yeah. think about these things logically um you know stuff like you know if you can't aspirate one-handed don't do it just use two just make your life easy yeah. um just
2: yeah
0: i don't know just little tweaks mm. Mm.
2: And being mindful, if you're getting a lot of resistance when you're injecting, that's telling you something about the, the plane or the area of the tissue that you're in. So it's not it, its not necessarily just that you've got a high extrusion force or you've got a syringe that's a product that's hard to push out. It, it might mean that there's something uh, going on. You might be intravascular. So
3: mm.
2: there's extrusion force tells you something sometimes.
1: Yeah. Definitely worth investigating, choosing the right product and thinking about your long-term health for sure. Um, moving on to some business questions, um, do you do much marketing? I mean, you said you've got a pretty large database. What's your method for attracting new patients to your practice?
2: I am a terrible, terrible business person. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I, I i always say that i'm very passive in my business in that i just kind of sit back and wait for the patients to come to me which is not the right thing and you know david we had a conversation yeah. uh, a while ago um, about business stuff and i sort of feel like i know the things that i should be doing but i for some reason or another don't put them into practice mm. be it um, time or laziness or whatever mm. but generally for me my business has run from word of mouth um, i have been doing this for a little while now so i have had patients I've been seeing for many many years and and typically they refer their friends and family to me um and then through the training I get a little bit of exposure with that which brings in sometimes other clients or mentors come to me from from wherever so um yeah I mean I certainly could be doing better in terms of my marketing to bring in more clients I have this conversation with a lot of people whether or not social media brings in many patients I don't tend to see that I don't know about you Jake whether that brings you the business I don't know
0: uh a few years ago I I I worked at it and, and I was on there a lot and funny enough last night was validation of my tactic for the last six months so for the last six months I've almost done nothing apart from stories just to show people I'm alive I'm here but I'm not really posting because I knew that something would change again which would mean I'd have to wade through all of my old posts and change it all. Mm-hmm. And last night was validation. That's exactly what's going to happen. So I've just decided to just take my foot off the pedal until I know what the rules are to play with. Um, but yeah, yeah, look, you know, patients, let's just be honest. You, you wander around any city and you look at anyone on their phone and they're highly likely on Instagram or TikTok or, or somewhere. So we know that our patients are looking at these places. Um, maybe it's not, your particular clientele or mine, but um, you know, someone's patients are on there. Um, so I think it's important to have some sort of presence, even if you're not dancing around like Ooh. an idiot or you know doing anything too controversial. It's almost like just like a live update of hi I'm Kelly and this is what I'm doing this week. It could be the most vanilla boring thing, but at least people know Oh, that person's there and she's an injector and she's in Brisbane. Um, so I think it's important to have some sort of presence. It's like not having a website. You just, you, just, you just can't not have a website because you need that validation yeah. that you're a real person. You're in a clinic and you know, you've got a menu of services, but, um, I don't know. I think it's becoming less and less important for me, if I'm honest.
3: Mm,
1: for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a changing space. Um, where do you think the industry is going in the next five to ten years if you sort of had to crystal ball gaze or
2: I think um, accreditation in some way, shape or form, formalized training and qualifications in some shape or form. And I think like you touched on before, we have seen the bigger clinics dilute out into lots and lots of little yeah. clinics. Mm-hmm. I do see a joining of the forces or an amalgamation in the other direction in the future, in terms of will become maybe co working spaces, is my personal thoughts. But um, in terms of clinical, I see a bigger focus on skin. Probably dermal fillers starting to dip off a little bit. It's still going to be a place for it, but I think skin quality uh, mm-hmm. biostimulators, bioremodelers will mm-hmm. grow and grow and grow. Yeah. Definitely. And New and novel ways of delivering it. Years ago, Arthur Swift talked about these um, under-eye patches for delivering micro Botox. Mm. And I think that, still waiting to see that, that was at Aesthetics 19, he talked about that. So something like that might, that might come along. That'd be great.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually at that talk and I think we briefly spoke yeah, about it did. when he came on for episode yeah. 200. But yeah. looks, I, I wouldn't say this stuff is way off. But I still think for the next at least five years we're going to be using something in a syringe. Yeah. yeah. And and it'll just be yeah. longer lasting, shorter lasting, or some mixture mm. of that.
1: I think that we you might we might see and we're starting to see this now is this sort of amalgamation between health and aesthetics. Mm. So clinics now yeah. that potentially have a functional GP or integrative GP on their team, they're starting to look at, you know, hot and cold therapies, looking at blood work differently, supplementation there's some really interesting things going on in that space, you know, anti-aging on a cellular level. So I think that we will start to see, not everyone, but I think you, start, you will start to see more clinics looking to join those two sort of disciplines together because it makes sense that they sort of fit together. If, you, if you're healthy and fit and well on the inside, then it's going to help the way you sort of appear to the world externally too. So
0: I, I totally agree. I, I just think in this atmosphere with ARPRA kind of scrutinizing every breath that we yeah. take, it, it it could be difficult. I mean, I know that maybe IV sort of drips and therapies may be a little bit fringe, but yeah. stuff like that is frowned upon because yeah. it's a bit pseudoscience or you mm. know, um there's not much evidence for making patients feel better. So again, like introducing functional yeah. medicine. I know some functional medical doctors who, for whatever reason, ARPRA don't like because yeah. they're offering stuff that is yeah. seen as
1: a little bit fringe. Yeah, but I think, I think it's the inevitable, inevitable pathway that it'll go down. So mm. once it sort of sorts itself out and there's a tried and tested and, and recognized um, sort of treatment protocols for, for those sorts of conditions and, and what you're looking to, which I, yeah, I, I just think it will go down that path at some point. It makes sense that if we can sort of arrest aging on a cellular level yeah. or reverse it, yeah. then it sort of ties in nicely yep. with what you can do with injectables as well. So, 100%. Yeah.
0: Now... In our favorite ending to Injector Diaries, we introduced some different questions yeah. uh, for 2024. Have you seen these yet, Kelly?
2: Yes, I had a little look. <laughs> oh, okay, fine.
0: Okay. So question one, uh, th- we're all about open and, and learning here. How many <laughs> vascular occlusions have you had?
2: Actually, I have never had any. Um, I've managed a few. I did have one in a training session, which I suppose we could say is possibly mine, but I didn't have the needle in my hand. So yeah. zero, but I've managed quite a few now.
1: Okay. Yeah, have some you don't know about. May have
2: possibly. Um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so zero for Kelly on the vascular occlusion uh, scoreboard. No, no problems. Um, do you use ultrasound? And if you do, like, what what sort of system do you use? And how do you find it? What would you like to share about the technology?
2: Yeah, so I have the Veno little tablet ultrasound handheld probe, which I think is um, fantastic. To be honest, I don't use it as much as I expected to use it. I do think that integrating it um, for every treatment is probably not going to be achievable. I certainly use it when I'm treating areas that I consider more of a high risk. And I use it for looking at old filler or filler that's possibly um, misplaced or um, occlusions. And I have a couple of patients that come to me with some badly placed filler that I might have a look for them or their uh, other clinicians come to me with sometimes problems and we have a look under ultrasound. So on the daily, probably don't use it as much as I expected, but I do love it.
0: Uh, you're probably at where I'm at with ultrasound. Like it's there, it's useful sometimes. I'm definitely not using it on every patient and maybe not even every day. But where, yeah. do, you, where do you think you'd like to take your education with ultrasound? Or are you happy at that level? And, you know, you, you're sort of, that's as far as it goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I um, the more and more I do this, the more my interest grows into different areas. So I I'm starting to develop a bit of an interest in complications management. So maybe I see um, learning more and more about that. I'm certainly an absolute novice with ultrasound. I don't think I'm at your level at all yet. So I, I am learning. Um, so hopefully learning a little bit more with ultrasound, possibly being able to inject certain areas mm. under ultrasound, which I think from a dexterity perspective is tricky, Because I think we say when we're injecting and we say it in training that, you know, you're going to inject this particular layer, but you don't know what layer you're in unless you have that ultrasound in your hand. So um, possibly that'll be the future goal. More of a complications focus within clinic, um, medico-legally, I'm not sure how that goes, and injecting under ultrasound possibly. But big, big learning curve for me on that.
0: Now, in the added questions for 2024 we got our last injector diaries uh, injector which was nikki who you have mentored to leave you a question yeah. so her question was and i don't know if this is relevant to your clinic but what device have you added to your clinic that has either been the most beneficial or profitable so do you have devices in your clinic
2: i do not so i um set up my clinic uh, three years ago and I previously was using devices, have my laser license, and love laser. I think it's fantastic. And I used to cool sculpting. I don't have any devices now. If I do get one in the future, which I'd like to, it would be a multi-modality platform. I think um, something that does a bit of pigment, skin mm-hmm. quality, and vascularity, whatever yeah. that might be. Would
1: it be an RF or laser device?
2: Well, um, I think I would lean towards laser because okay. it's a little more versatile at this point. Okay. Okay,
0: fair. Now, in our final twist for these questions, you have to leave a question for our next Injector Diaries guest who, it's not confirmed and I won't tell you their name because that just makes it kind of weird, (laughs) but it may be someone well-known in the UK. I'll just leave it at that, but you may not have even heard of them before. So leave them a question. All
2: right. So... Yeah, so my question to them would be if you were not working in the aesthetic industry and you weren't an injector, what would you do? Would it be something medical or would it be completely different?
0: Okay. Fair enough. Good. We will let that injector know. I like it. Yep, fantastic. Well, Kelly, it's been an honor to speak to you. It's been nice to catch up and speak to a fellow trainer about all these issues and dramas and regulations. You solved
1: all the world's problems in an hour and 18 minutes. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
2: thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: Yeah, right. it's our pleasure. And um, which conferences are you going to go to this year? You said you sort of tend to go to most of them reasonably regularly.
2: Yeah, last year was the first year I didn't really go to them. So this year I'm planning on Aesthetics 24. I do like Seven Lotus one, although I do find it very quick, short and snappy, which is not, I don't want as much when it's too quick. But yeah. Dr. Suvio in the US, I'm going to his because I think he is an absolute no shit says it how it is and i really like his style so that's mm. my big one this year
0: cool that's needle art in i'm guessing it's chicago mm. no where is it i don't know where it is
2: philadelphia yeah, philadelphia.
0: philadelphia that's right that's where he's based Philly. cool all right well we will hopefully catch up at one of these conferences and thank you for your time thanks kelly
2: thank you for having me
0: for our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our Patreon for invaluable business and injectable
1: education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.